0: morning. My name is Will. I am one of the pastors here at New Life And if you are a visitor here today, just want to welcome you and thank you for joining us. Glad that you're here to worship with us. We are finishing up our last sermon in a series looking at the book of Philippians. We entitled this series, Joy in the Journey. And a major reason why we wanted to look at Philippians is because our current ministry year theme is about call to Christ and call to serve. And we thought to end this series and end our ministry year, or end this year with this spiritual focus, Philippians is actually the best letter to do that because if there's any letter that talks about meeting and being called to Jesus and being so changed and radically transformed that you now feel called to serve the wider kingdom, Philippians is probably that one book. And we are finishing this series here today by looking at three short verses at the very end of Philippians chapter 4. And so if you are able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. We do this as a sign of reverence and act of worship and pray that your hearts and your minds will be open. Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. And this is God's Word, I pray that you be blessed. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. You can go ahead and take your seats. They say that sometimes the most powerful words are spoken in the fewest of words. And I don't know if that's just a writing technique to say that the more succinct you could express something, the better it is communicated. But if that's not all true, then the ending of Philippians really encapsulates that point because in three verses, the Apostle Paul has jam-packed his theological message of Philippians, but he saturates it with a loving pastoral heart. That's what we have in these three verses. Paul closes his letter with greetings that really communicate a lot in a very few words. All the commentators will note that Philippians is probably Paul's most personal letter, his most pastoral letter. It's a, an intimacy, a joy that Paul has with this partnership at the Church of Philippi. He started this church. He preached and evangelized to three very different people that might have been his core team in church planning this church in Macedonia and Philippi. He had the Philippian jailer. He had the young girl, the slave girl, who was demon-possessed, and he had this really wit- rich... An entrepreneurial woman by the name of Lydia who had a a fashion industry uh, mark on really developing different kinds of cloth and that was what he evangelized with and now he says this church has my heart. Now if we had to summarize Philippians it's essentially about the gospel and the joy and the humility and the unity and the love and the partnership of this church. And Paul wants to highlight that because he remembers when he evangelized and started this church, and now he's in jail proclaiming to this church how much he loves them. And that's what's encapsulated, that's what's captured in this final greeting in verses 21 to 23. And what I'm going to try to do is to show you the entirety of this letter of how succinct Paul is in his heart and his message of the gospel for the church. And the way to encapsulate and capture the entire letter is to show the connection between Paul's first verses— and Paul's ending verses. So even in the beginning of the letter, the Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the verses that we just read, he almost says it in the same way, and he's talking about the saints at Philippi, grace to you, love to you. I pray that you know Jesus in your spirit. And that's what I want to talk about when he say the entire letter, this pastoral heart, this rich theological message of this partnership that Paul had with Philippi, we're going to look at these final words and these final greetings, and there's three things that Paul highlights very simply. First, we'll be reminded of our identity. Secondly, we'll talk about Paul's greeting. And then thirdly, we'll look at his age-old message, but that's fresh every morning, the grace of Jesus Christ. So identity, greeting, and grace. So let's look at identity. Well, Paul is very clear here, and he says, as I close this letter... Philippi. I want you to be reminded of your identity. And he says your essential identity is going to be a saint. That if you're a believer, you gave your life to Jesus, you are a saint. Now oftentimes we think about saints and what comes to mind is somebody like gentle and grandfatherly or somebody like Mother Teresa. And there's some truth to that. Somebody who's kind and gentle And so generous and does a lot of good and really cares for the marginalized and the poor and those who are ostracized and put to the side. But I want to deepen your understanding of what it means to be a saint because if you're honest, many of us are not like that. But Paul says you're still very much a saint. And we know that because he says in verse 21 greet every saint in Christ. That's his commandment. Greet every saint in Christ. And that's really going back to verse 1 where he began this letter and he wrote in his salutation, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So he says, to the saints I'm writing this letter, now I'm ending this letter, greet all the saints. So clearly he understands our identity, Christians, as being a saint. Now let's define that a little bit. Saint is essentially that word in the Greek that conveys this idea of holiness. It's the same word, holiness. And what that word fundamentally means is not first about how you live and what you do and how loving you are, even though that's important. Being holy or being a saint fundamentally is about your identity. It's not just the way you live, but it's about who you are and who you belong to. Because the Bible will always define you and I as a saint, but it will also define us in different ways to say that your ultimate identity is defined in your relationship to God. Not in relationship to work, or our beauty, or our money, or our zip code, or our occupation. But he says, you are fundamentally identified in relationship to God. So throughout all the passages in the Bible, he'll say in the beginning of Genesis, you're identified as an image bearer of God in Genesis 1. He, later on in the New Testament, he'll say that in 2 Corinthians 5, we are agents of his mercy and reconciliation. We're identified by God's mission. We are his family. We are God's bride. We are God's children. First Peter says, you are God's chosen race. You are his royal priesthood. We are justified in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are adopted in Christ. Everything about us in the way the Bible tries to depict identity is always in relationship to God and not to anything horizontal in this world. Our community is a community of God's people. And so when he says there's a definition of same is first more about who you are before what you do. A saint means that you're set apart for a purpose, a design. You have a reason to be. You have a purpose to live. So in some ways, you could say that in a functional sense that a pair of eyeglasses are really, uh, they're made saints because they're holy, they're set apart. They're designated for a purpose, which is to read and to see. So you put your glasses on to look at and to see with clarity, You could say that a fork is sort of a saint if in the sense that its first identity is used to poke food and pick up food. So if you ever use your glasses and you try to use that to pick up your food or you try to use your fork in order to read your book with more clarity, then it's no longer saintly living. It's not holy. It's not using the design that it's meant to be. So God is saying, I chose you. I made you. You're a royal priesthood. I sanctified you. You're my children. You're my bride. And you're saints because I set you apart across... The world from all these other nations that you're my very children. And that's why you're saints, because of who you are and who you belong to, not first about how you live. It's about the quality of you who you are more than the activity of what you do. Although you do need both. But fundamentally, we always think about the ethics before we think about what they call in terms of ontology or your identity or what makes you up. Now, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, You are saints sanctified in Jesus. It's about your identity. Now think about this really quickly. The most messed up church in the New Testament is arguably First Corinthians, the Corinthian church, because they had false doctrine, they had false worship, they had fornication, adultery, broken marriages, they had doctrinal issues and heresy, they had cliques, they had division and tribal mentality. They had political division. They had, it was our arguably the worst church in the New Testament. How does Paul begin his letter to the Corinthians? To the saints. Because before he goes to ethics and what they do, he's saying, no matter what, you're still in Jesus. You're set apart for a purpose. You're set apart for a design. You're my people. In Ephesians 1, Paul gives his other definition of saints that says, saints, you are chosen in Christ in relation to him. Ephesians 2, saints are a new creation in Christ. And in fact, probably the most preeminent virtue of any saint is going to be First Corinthians 13, which is the attribute, the characteristic of love, that you are loved by God, you're loved by Jesus, and then you're called out to love one another. Now, if I clarify this, I want to try to balance this out for you. The way that the Bible wants to identify you in relationship to God is ultimately about saints. That's for finished personhood. That's for separation. That's for identity. He sets you apart. But oftentimes then in, in some biblical narratives, what you look in the Bible, it, you'll see different designations for people. And the three categories for people are essentially sinner, sufferer, and saint. So if you're thinking, well, we're not all saintly and there's a lot of bad Christians out there. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt a lot of sin. In the Bible, identifying this messiness of this world, Christians as a sinner, a sufferer, and a saint. But it's not an equal balance. The Bible and the evidence in Scripture says you are heavily identified as a saint. And sometimes in life, depending on the season of your life and what life throws at you, you feel different, different identities. Sometimes in the the spirit will speak and you just feel for a long time i'm the i'm such a bad sinner i'm just so sinful in my motivation and heart i'm so self-concentrated and self-centric self-motivated but sometimes in other seasons of your life you're just suffering and life is hard you know i'm struggling in my relationships i'm struggling with mental health i'm struggling with my work i'm struggling with joy and you're just in a season of suffering. You're losing loved ones. You found out an illness. This world is broken. It is corrupt because of this thing called sin. So sometimes in seasons of your life, you're like, I'm really suffering, and I just feel like a sufferer, like Job in the Bible. But in the midst of this and the long perspective, the Bible will say the dominant accent is the fact that you are a saint. Sure, that you are a sinner. You are a sufferer. But you are really, at the end of the day, a saint. You are God's very own. He's never going to let you go. God sees you in His finished state because He sees you through Son Jesus, and He gives you grace to get there. Did you know that in the Bible, these are some rough statistics, over 300 times in the Bible, there is a reference to sinners, but only three of those times does the Bible possibly refer to a Christian as a sinner. So talk about sinners generically or about non-Christians or just sin in general, but there's only roughly maybe three times according to one article that says maybe sinner is addressed and referred to by a Christian. So dominant identity is going to be about being a saint. There is zero times in the book of Philippians that there's the word sin or sinner. There are over 200 times in the Bible that Christians are referred to as saints or holy or righteous. So if you want to live out your identity, especially for younger ones, you want to discover yourself. Discover yourself through Scripture that says, yes, there is sin, there is suffering. You don't minimize that. You can't discount that. But when you think about your existential identity, what the Bible wants you to understand is that you are holy, righteous, and a saint. Not because of your ethics, but because of what God has done for you. That is your identity. But I'm going to try to pastorally break this down a little bit more to comfort you a little bit, I get this from Paul Tripp. And what he writes in Paul Tripp in this one article, he says, saints are qualified not by perfection, even though you'll get there by God's grace, but saints are qualified by redemption, that you're going to be redeemed by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus, saved by Jesus, encouraged by Jesus, empowered by Jesus. He says, saints aren't perfect. Saints are just people who recognize their neediness and have been redeemed. No saint has ever been so righteous as to earn God's love. No saint has reached such perfection of character that he or she is no more in need of God's forgiveness. No, no saint will ever be with God in eternity on the basis of your own work and merit. Actually, the reality is very different for saints if we look at our lives and the saints in the Bible. Saints oftentimes do dumb things in our foolishness and our sin and selfishness. Saints oftentimes step over God's boundaries and we often veer off into sinful territory. Saints oftentimes say they believe and that they love God and love people, but their lives never seem to reflect this. Saints also fall into thinking that they're smarter than God and wiser than God and better than God and more confident than God. That's why we try to control our lives and go off into an arena of anxiety. That's actually what saints are until Jesus comes back and he continues to grow us. That's what you are. And the Apostle Paul begins and says, To the saints in Philippi, greet every saint in Philippi. That couches and encapsulates your identity and mind. Scripture envelops you in this identity and giving you a purpose and reason to being. So he's saying, yes, feel remorseful for your sin. Yes, I know you're feeling pain. But he says, to the saints of Philippi, the grace of Jesus Christ. With the saints of Jesus Christ, may his spirit be with you. Grace to you, to you I write about grace. That's actually what your identity is. And one simple application is this. If that's how God sees you, and he's saying that's how God wants you to see yourself, the question is, when you look around in this room and out there in the world, how do you see each other? Do you see each other always in relationship to God? Yes, they're sinning, they're suffering, but they're ultimately a saint. But do you see them in relationship to God? Or do you see people in this room in relationship to something else, as an adversary, as a competitor, as someone you're envious of, someone you get annoyed with, someone that you just can't get along with, someone who's not funny, someone who's too rich and doesn't, is not generous enough, someone who's too poor and is always expecting a handout. How do you view each other in this room? Is it in relationship to God? Or is it in relationship to your sin and your personal preferences and categories? Because if God wants to see you as a saint, we need to understand ourselves as saints. That means we look at everyone in this room first and foremost, as a saint, a saint of Jesus Christ. That leads us to our second point. To these saints, to you and me, Paul says, God through me wants to greet you. He wants to greet you. He wants to say hi. Read with me again verse 21 to 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So the word there, greet, is there three times in two verses. And in the Greek, greet simply means, in the original Greek, it means to embrace. It's not just a high. It's an embrace. It's a love. Now, what does a, an embrace convey? If somebody comes up to you and says, hello, and a second person comes up to you and gives you a hug, and you could feel the warmth and the love, and they embrace you, they communicate two very different realities, doesn't it? And this Greek word for greet, three times in two verses, is this embrace, this heartfelt. And embrace conveys, I love you, I'm with you, I see you. We're going to do life together. I'm going to go down the trenches with you. I'm going to celebrate with you. We are in this together, side by side, looking at Jesus in this vision that God has given us. I embrace you as Jesus has embraced us. That's what greet means. It's an embracing. It isn't just a hello. It's not just a recognition. It's an engagement together in life. Greetings are really powerful, friends. Greetings are very, very, very powerful. You know, it's not just a Christian thing. Greeting is part of the way the world works because God designed this world. Greeting has tremendous impact on community and your mental health. Even aside from the gospel, so even this article by the Duke Global Health Institute, there's just a testimony of someone who was traveling to different cultures in the world. She wrote that greetings were so essential. You know, and it expresses culture. It expresses different personalities. It ex- greetings express relationships and history. So when I, stick, when I stick my hand out, hello, I'm Pastor Will, it's nice to meet you. Sure, that conveys something, but it also says, well, they just met. But if I go up to someone else and I give them a high five or I just give them a fist bump, hey, what's up, man? Good to see you. How was it last week? Then you know there's a relationship. And different cultures greet differently. Now, some kiss each other on the cheek. Some actually, we bow in Eastern cultures. Sometimes you do a handshake. Sometimes you hold a double handshake. They all communicate something different across the globe and in the culture. But one thing across ethnicities and generations and cultures, everyone sees the positive value of a greeting because it communicates and conveys identity, relationship, and acceptance. That's what this article in the Duke Global Health Institute is talking about. It even writes, that says, saying hello, smiling, can give you a sense of belonging that addresses depression and loneliness. Greeting has a power for this. Even a book I'm reading by Dale Carnegie says, How to Influence People and Make Friends. He emphasizes this one, Sort of point, not about a greeting, but he says, "Remember people's names." The power of remembering remembering someone's names can really make that person feel seen and known, and that's why you could know them and greet them individually by their name, because greetings have that sort of power. power. You know, even when, kind of a side note, but when when the government and when the California Health Department Newsom said, "You know, we can." as a church and religious institution. You know, you come back together and you can congregate physically. I was thinking, man, how we haven't seen each other for a couple, maybe a couple of years, maybe months, and we're coming back together physically. It's gonna be a relational and psychological adjustment. And they're looking and trying to follow all these like these crazy protocols. You know, we had this this face heat detector that you do face recognition. It tells you if your temperature is above a certain and certain temperature, and everyone has to go through that. Our welcoming ministry led by Jennifer Kim has to put on masks. I got to wear a mask. Can't read smiles. Can't have. How are we going to make this feel welcoming when people want to gather together so they want to keep coming back? How are we going to greet them so that they're going to feel welcomed? And so I thought, well, let me look at another organization that I think probably will do this well, and that's Disney. And so I went to Disney, downtown Disney, two or three times. But I just like Disney, but I also wanted to see how are they going to make me feel welcome? Because if anybody could do that under common grace in that world out there, I felt like Disney's going to do it. And they had masks, and they're taking their temperature, but they had so many stations. And I went there to see how do they greet people in this weird world that we live in? You know, it was their eyes, it was their voice. They have to accent it more to be more friendly. They have to talk a lot. They have to encourage them to be clear. But greetings have that ability to feel, make someone feel comforted, welcomed, and seen. So what's notable about Paul's greeting is on 21, he begins this way. He says, greet every saint individually. Greet every person. See, understand what Paul's doing. He's writing this letter in Roman imprisonment. He wants God to greet the church in Philippi through Paul's letter, Paul's writing this to elders and deacons, and he's saying, I love you. I miss you. Greet every single person for me. Embrace them and hug them. That's Paul's pastoral heart. He doesn't just say, tell the church I said hi. He says, can you embrace? Can you do me a favor? Can you embrace every single saint individually in their unique stories and makeup and brokenness and heartache and their partnership and generosity? Can you embrace each and every one? God's love comes to you individually, friends. He sees you individually. He knows you individually. He cares for you individually. He sees you and embraces you and knows you in the gospel of his son. And this greeting is so important that Paul conveys this, remember, three times the word greeting, two verses, to show you that there's this multi-layered deep level of greeting. The word, the verb there greet in verse 21 is actually a plural. He's saying to a group, greet individuals, and that's probably verse 1 to the elders and deacons, deacons and overseers. So telling the leaders of the church, greet each person for me. There's a multi-layered greeting here. And then he says, there are brothers who are with me. That's probably the people who knew Paul, that were with Paul near Rome, who loved Paul, prayed for Paul, taught with Paul, received from Paul, suffered with Paul, smiled with Paul, ate with Paul, laughed with Paul. That, these are people who are with me. And that's probably what Paul says in verse 1 and 2 of the letter. He says, Paul and Timothy and the servants of Christ Jesus, those are his band of brothers. Those are people with him. Those are the missionaries out on the field. And he says, okay, tell everyone I embrace them individually. Tell them my entourage, we also greet them. No, it's the leaders over here in the mission field at Rome that's telling the church back at home in Philippi, I greet you. That's what he's saying. Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, also embraces the church. And then in verse 22, he says this, All the saints over here in Rome, especially those in Caesar's household, they greet you. Man, he just really wants you to be saturated in the greeting of God. He's saying, I greet them personally and individually. My band of brothers also greets you in Philippi. And then he says and expands it, the Church of Rome, all the Christians here greet you. And by the way, also some Christians of Caesar's palace. It's not probably not Caesar's household, but it's probably slaves and freedmen who are workers in the palace. And then they actually became Christian is what I think the Apostle Paul is saying. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, the saints here. See, verses 1, chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, I'm summarizing, but Paul begins, says, Basically, you know, even though I'm in prison, I'm still being used for the gospel. That's what chapter 1, verse 12 to 13. What's so funny is that Paul says in chapter 1, I'm in prison, but don't feel sorry for me. The gospel continues to spread in, in the household of Caesar. But then he waits four chapters. He says in chapter 1, the gospel spreading in the palace. But he waits to explain what that is. And then he concludes and he confirms, hey, there's Christians here, even those in Caesar's palace, household, they also greet you. That means the gospel even went to those who were in Caesar's palace, his Roman imprisonment. All the saints here in Rome greet you, especially those in the household of Nero who became Christian. Caesar, some people work for him. They greet you. They're part of our family now. He says, Philippians, I want you to know this. God's kingdom is expanding. Christians are now in the emperor's household, the psychotic, maniacal, wicked, persecuted Christians. There's some who converted in Caesar's household, and now they want to greet you. Now, I read this somewhere. I don't know if it's true, probably not true, but there was some people, some scholars, historians, that say this one guy, Jerome, once wrote about the possibility of one of Nero's wife actually becoming Christian Probably not true, but at least there's some discussion out there. We'll never really know. But if that's true, that's amazing. So it's multi-layered. Paul says, I embrace everyone. My entourage wants to greet you. The church in Rome wants to greet you. And also some of the recent converts in Nero's household want to greet you. It's not just a hi. It's not just a hello. It's saying, I want to embrace you and engage you for life. Here's our application to think about. Can we greet one another in this way? No, it's not a hello, it's not a recognition. Can we engage one another? Because when you embrace someone, did you realize that you're embracing the whole person? You can't embrace just certain parts of people. You can't say, I embrace your humor, but I don't want to embrace your work. I embrace your job, but I don't embrace your work ethic. You have to embrace the whole person. You know what that means? You embrace the good, and you also embrace the bad. The whole person. You embrace the person's gifts, but also the person's, inadequacies, ineptitude. You you embrace a person when they're gracious and loving, but you also embrace them when they're weak and they're selfish. You embrace personalities that are extroverted and funny, but you also embrace personalities that are introverted and maybe not as socially savvy. You embrace a person's eccentricities and their weirdness. You take it all within you. You embrace the whole person. In one sense, the entire ministry of New Life Prez is really about Greeting and cultivating this. The welcome ministry will greet people. Community groups are more to cultivate that. Discipleship groups, you know, like singles and college small groups are all about cultivating and embracing one another and embracing the whole per- person. And the good news for us is that the reason we can do this is because God in Christ has embraced all of you and your total person your sin, your rebellion, your brokenness, the evil inside of your heart. And Jesus says, I embrace every one of you individually and take your sin onto my record to die on the cross for you. God loves you. Came down from heaven to earth to embrace you, to greet you in this way, individually the entirety of who you are, and if that drops, if that makes sense, if there's, there's any sense of the Spirit speaking to you in this way, that'll empower you to embrace one another just like Jesus has embraced you. It's a different word, but I think the same concept, maybe the greatest picture of this embracing and this heartfelt love comes from this well-known story called the prodigal son. I'm just going to read one verse, Luke 15:20 It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We're not going to go into the prodigal son, basically you have a younger son who just wanted his inheritance, wanted his dad to die, takes his money, spends it on prostitutes and gambling or whatever it may be, and then comes back home because God led him to repentance. God represented in the father in this parable, sees his son far off. He's so happy to see him, even though his son just left him and abandoned him, but God's love for you is like that. We run away from him, we abandon him, we're selfish and use our resources, but the parable of the prodigal son says that the father, which represents God to you, runs to you and embraces you and kisses you and hugs you and celebrates and put this awesome party in heaven for you because whenever there's a convert or somebody comes and repents, heaven explodes in celebration. And that's the greeting that we have with one another. That's our greeting. That's what we receive, the greeting of God to channel out the greeting to one another. So we have our identity, we have this greeting. Paul ends very quickly. He says, I want to give you grace. I'm going to give you grace. In verse 23, let's read this. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, if you didn't realize this, verse 23 is what we call a benediction. You know, when one of the pastors comes up here at the end of service, you know, may the Lord bless you, may the Lord keep you, or whatever version that we do, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. First of all, let me just say this. It's not a prayer you know there could be it's okay to close your eyes and receive it but a benediction is not a prayer and so sometimes a benediction through song could be expressed as a prayer you could pray a benediction but an actual simple benediction is not a prayer so if you're praying you're closing your eyes that's okay but that's not really what the benediction is a benediction when they come up on service is not actually to pray with you but it's to give you the blessing and the pronouncement of god is to say by the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word, God says after this service, when we can't congregate together, you're going out there into the world, and it's the bridge. The benediction is a bridge from what we receive here in a taste of heaven to when you go back there into the world. So it's not a prayer, although you can pray it. You don't pray a benediction, you receive it. In some ways, if somebody has given you something great, you don't close your eyes and pray it. You open your eyes and receive it from the heavenly throne. That's how you receive the benediction. Because it's not a prayer, it's a pronouncement of God's blessing that's real and practical and encouraging and healing, and to saying when we met with God here in worship, he's gonna be with you out there in the world through this benediction that we receive by grace and faith at open arms. But Paul says in verse 23: the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's a benediction of blessing given to church. Now I'm gonna tie this in the beginning with verse one, uh, verse two, chapter one. But verse 1, chapter 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, It's really interesting. Paul is so good. He writes this letter and says, Grace to you, now the grace of the Lord be with you. He's saying, I'm going to write this letter, grace to you, that encapsulates his message. He's going to spend four chapters to explain what is this grace to you. And after he explains it in four chapters, he ends it and says, what I just explained is the grace that's with you. I want grace to come to you. I'm explaining it four chapters. Now the grace will be with you in the benediction. Does that make sense? I'm writing this to you so that you could receive and learn God's grace, but now that you received it, you learned it, we extolled it, we explained it, we loved it. Paul says, now grace with you. Grace comes to you so it could go with you, so it could go through you to be received out there in the world. That's the benediction. Grace and peace, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends it, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The letter begins with grace, and it ends with grace. And so you're wondering, well, what is this grace to you? What is the grace that's with you? Well, I've just said it. It's these four chapters. That's what Paul talked about, this grace in Jesus Christ. He celebrated this. He proclaimed it. He prayed it. He extolled it. He plied it. He shared it. He praised God for it. He thanked God for it. He worshiped God for it. You know what? The apostle of Paul, he's gonna die for it. Right there at the end. If you look at these four chapters in Philippians 1, it's the gospel of joy in life and death. That's the grace to you. Philippians chapter 2, it's the celebration of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation, his death and resurrection. He celebrates this. The path of glorification comes through the path of humiliation. The path of exaltation comes the path of humiliation. And then in chapter chapter 3, Philippians, it's the supremacy of knowing Jesus. You have good intimacy and you put on the mind of Christ. He's celebrating this. In chapter 4, he's thankful for this gospel partnership and says, you gave me money, but I'm thankful more for your heart and our lives together. There's the gospel joy in life and death. There's the celebration of Jesus' life and death. There's the supremacy of knowing Jesus' life and death. And he's thankful for this gospel partnership to be in missions for the life and death of Jesus. And he's saying, this is the grace to you. Now I'm praying a benediction, giving you, pronouncing a benediction so that this grace can be with you. Hopefully that makes sense. That's what we get here in this joy in the journey. What's interesting as we come to a close is this. In verse 23, there's an interesting phrase there that's unique to the New Testament. It says, grace be with your spirit, your soul. Saying God's grace be poured out on you and in you, surrounding you, saturating you, permeating you down to the depths of your soul, the essence of your identity, your spirit. It's what on your fundamental basis makes you who you are, the control center of your life. Yeah, our bodies, physical bodies, matter a lot. We're never going to be separated from physical bodies. But you're getting at the core of your identity and who you are. It's your soul. It's your spirit. And he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus will come to the core of your being to change you from inside out, to saturate you, your spirit, your goodness of God coming into your being singularly, individually, Because that spirit and that word is about the individual and singular. and saying it's not just the spirit and the grace coming to the spirit collectively, but he's saying individually the spirit will receive as the grace of Jesus comes to you individually, the grace to you and to you and to you and to you and to you. In your inner being your core, all the things that we see in Philippians 4 are now given to you in his son Jesus in his redemption, who has came to embrace you in his life, but also in his death and also in his resurrection and also in his ascension and also in his session, that he has done this for you at the very core of your being. And so I pray as we conclude this series, this joy in the journey, that the journey doesn't stop now, but the joy also continues with you and moves you forward sustains you, changes you, transforms you until you fully are consistent with the identity that you have as a saint of Jesus Christ. As God greets you and we greet one another and that the benediction of God's grace in Jesus comes to your very core and inner spirit, giving you heavenly life that lifts you up from wherever your circumstances are to worship, to transcend your circumstances, to glorify God, to find joy even in the midst of hurt together as a church called New Life Press. Let's turn to the Lord, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we receive in your son. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us your saints. We thank you that you have set us apart for a purpose and plan far greater than we could ever imagine. We thank you that you have greeted us in the gospel of your son who embraced us in our brokenness and hurt and embraced our sin and made it his very own so that we could have life in him. Thank you for this benediction, this pronouncement to say you'll never leave us, you'll never separate from us because the grace of Jesus, your son, God, comes to our very core in spirit to encourage us, change us, transform us, sustain us. And we thank you so much for this, God. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.